folks, Dr. Travis McMacken here. Welcome or welcome back, as the case may be. Thank you for choosing to spend a bit of your day with me. I hope that I can at least help you to think some interesting thoughts. I'll be back with you in a moment after the music ends. All right. Good morning. Good morning. So you all have a couple of sheets of paper in front of you. They are printed front and back. The texts we have for today are a bit wordier <laughs> than the texts we had last week, which I could fit all on one page, but this just would not cooperate. The psalm just kind of keeps going and takes up a lot of space. So we have another set of four readings in front of us today from the lectionary. We've got Genesis, a psalm, Philippians and the epistles, and then sticking with the Gospel of Luke here in year C, which is fun because Luke's my favorite gospel. So um, I thought we'd take them more or less in order because there's some interesting interconnections again between them. And that is one of the um, things about the lectionary. They try to put together different themes and different stories and different ideas so that they kind of build on one another and have those connections so that folks can get up and preach about these texts and find those connections within them and make other interesting connections. So it's a, a nice feature that they work together thematically. But Genesis 15, 1 through 12 and 17 through 18. Cut a few verses out of it for us, um, mostly having to do with the different preparations that Abraham undertakes on God's instructions for this kind of strange ceremony uh, that happens with um, a, flaming, a, a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But it says in verse 1, after these things, which is always a dead giveaway, right? What things? Does anybody know what happens in Genesis 14? It's one of my favorite stories, actually in the book of Genesis. It shifts our perception of, of the kind of person we're dealing with when we think about Abraham. I think we all have an idea of Abraham as this wandering shepherd type, a pastoralist living out in a tent, right? Maybe he's got a couple folks who help him take care of his sheep, a couple servants, you know. But we, we kind of think he's just a bit of a nomad, kind of a loner with his small group, is, or, or is that just me? That's the mental image I usually just reflexively have, probably from back when I had flannel board Sunday school lessons about Abraham. But is all this resonating? This is how we usually think of him? I'm seeing some nodding. Yeah? yeah? So Genesis 14 um, puts the lie to all that, because in Genesis 14 we hear about kind of the political situation there in the Judean hills at the time. And basically, a couple kings with really hard-to-pronounce names from cities whose names are hard to pronounce go raiding. And while they're raiding, they're kind of working their way up and down um, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, and they end up capturing Lot, Abraham's nephew. They had gone their separate ways in, in chapter 13, and they had gone their separate ways because their flocks were too big to keep together. Their, their shepherds and things and herders were getting into arguments about wells and whatnot. So they're like, you go that way, I'll go this way. And so Lot and his people get captured 
and taken prisoner, and the kings are taking them back north to their cities. Well, Abraham hears about this. What do you think he does? Gets on his trusty camel and rides. Gets on his trusty camel and rides. Exactly. But it says that he goes and he grabs the 318 trained men of his household. Mm-mm. No, he is not. 318, not just go grab the herders, right? 318 trained men. He's got his own personal bodyguard, right? He's basically a warlord, right? 318 trained guys. And they chase down these kings off on their raids, and they defeat them, and they bring Lot and all of his family back, and they recapture all the stuff these folks had taken, and they work their way back down the river, giving all the stuff back to the people had been taken from. And there's this real interesting scene at the very end of chapter 14 where they run into this king called Melchizedek. And Melchizedek comes out to meet them and uh, throws them a feast and offers uh, Abraham the spoils. And Abraham says, no, 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 I'll just take expenses, basically. And that's how the chapter ends. And it's really interesting because in Hebrews, uh, Melchizedek gets picked up in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament as a type of Christ from the Old Testament. Lots of really interesting interpretive ink spilled, spilled about that. But that's chapter 14. So after these things, right, after Abraham goes on this rescue mission with his 318 trained men, I really don't understand how this is not a movie at this point. I mean, they're remaking everything. Here's fresh material. Uh, but after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And what does the word of the Lord say? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Huh. Does it sound to you like Abraham's a type who's afraid? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Doesn't sound that way to me. He has other fears. Exactly. So what is it that Abraham is afraid of? No legacy. Exactly. No legacy. He has the fears that every ruler has, every king has. It's dynasty, right? It's um, who's going to inherit. He's not so worried about raiding kings, right? He can handle those guys. He's got the respect of uh, the folks in the region where he lives. They leave him alone. He leaves them alone. What's he afraid of? This idea of posterity, this idea of the security of his line. That's what he's worried about. So God says, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be great. And then Abraham says, okay, sure. But what are you going to give me? For I continue childless. And that what, are you get, what will you give me line just always, you know, grates in my ears. Like, okay, so what has God not given Abraham at this point? Right? He's got flocks. He's got servants. He's got his own personal bodyguard of 318 guys. He's as strong a power in the region as there is. God, what are you going to do for me? Mm -hmm. We always want more. 
Mm -hmm. You know, like the grass is greener, you have this, therefore I want it too. I'm jealous, I'm envious. You have a hundred sons, I yep. have none, you know. Exactly. So I must not be good enough, you know, that whole good enoughness. Mm -hmm. Compare ourselves to everybody else when visibly yeah and really what what abraham is saying is look god the one thing you promised me <laughs> i still don't have right god shows up in chapter 12 of genesis and says i'm going to make you a great nation and abraham's saying look this eliezer of damascus is the only guy i've got to leave my stuff to what's the deal right i thought we were we were in a in an arrangement here i thought we had an agreement Abram says, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came, nope, that ain't going to happen. We have that whole look at the heavens, try to count the stars. Right? I think we're all familiar with this kind of language um, from the story of Abraham. But Abraham is looking for a kind of security that you can't get with 318 trained men. Right? There are some kinds of security you can get <laughs> with 318 trained men. There are other kinds. And those other kinds of security are the kinds that keep you up at night, right? It's kind of those deep questions of meaning. I mean, I don't think Abraham found meaning in his life at this point from being this powerful guy, right? He was looking for the fulfillment of this promise. He was looking to leave something behind that was going to be the start of something great. And he's not seeing where that is. And so kind of at an existential, existential level, he's lacking that kind of security. And the thing that jumped out at me then was the gospel reading from last week. Do you remember what that, we didn't get to talk about it that much, but do you remember what it was? The story of Jesus' temptation, right? The devil says, oh, you're hungry? Use your power, turn those stones into bread, don't be hungry anymore. Jesus says, nope. Devil says, oh, you want wealth and influence. We can do that too. Jesus says, nope. Oh, you want to test your God? Nope. <laughs> right? Different kinds of security. There's, in each of these stories, Jesus and Abraham, they have certain kinds of power. But it's not what really matters. It's not control over the thing that's at their the core of their being, that relationship that they have with God. They can't control that. And so at the end of the day, there's this deep insecurity that has to be overcome by what? By faith. So we drop to verse 6. You only get faith from God anyway. You only get faith to God, from God. And it's all that ultimately matters here because we read, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. And I love that word reckoned. Maybe it's because I grew up watching old westerns where they say I reckon and things like that, right? But it's a great word. It's an accounting term is where it comes from, where you keep the, the sides of the ledger nice and tidy and you keep all the sums lined up and calculating correctly. That's what reckoning means. It's keeping the books in order. And the Lord reckons this. He credits Abraham's account with this faith as righteousness. Does this, uh, does this sentence sound familiar to anybody? Encounter it anywhere else in the Bible, do you think? Yes, 
<laughs> that's, that's what I'm for. <laughs> it shows up in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Paul's talking, and, you know, the book of Romans is one of the most interesting, well, they're, they're all interesting in their different ways, but Romans is very interesting to me and very important um, to Protestantism. In the early decades of Protestantism, all the leading Protestant thinkers wrote a commentary on Romans. It was kind of what they did um, to kind of cement their leadership, as you had to provide an interpretation of Romans. But anyway, in Romans, the first few chapters of Romans, Paul is struggling with the question of, and it comes back later on in Romans 2, it's kind of the overriding concern, but he's struggling with the question of how do we make sense of the fact that there are these non-Jewish folks involved in this Jesus thing. Which, if you think back to Acts, that's been at the core of what Paul's been up to ever since he was up to anything with reference to Jesus. Right? He's the apostle to the Gentiles. They have this whole conversation in Acts where, all right, Peter, you're leading the, leading the charge with the Jews. Paul, you're going to the Gentiles. So this is constantly on Paul's mind. And in Romans, he's got a community where there's some Jews, there's some Gentiles who are there, and there's some tension between them. And he's trying to make sense of how this works. Because the Jews have the law, yeah. Do the Gentiles need the law? Come back to some of that later on. But ultimately, the move that Paul makes is to say, Abraham. If you look back to Abraham, you go back behind Moses to an earlier level of the tradition, kind of like this foundational level, what really matters is faith. So you've got this foundational level of Abraham and faith in Paul's mind, and then Moses and the law is built on top of that, and so on. And what Jesus allows to happen in Paul's mind is that Gentiles don't have to get plugged into the law. They can pl get plugged in right into Abraham, that kind of level, that foundational level of faith relationship with God. And you know what the fascinating thing is? Is Islam says almost the exact same thing. So there's this whole debate in the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I always put them in that order because that's the chronological order. <laughs> First Judaism, then Christianity, then Islam. And Islam, as they're putting together their ideas, they're interacting with both Jewish and Christian scriptures and stories. And there's been some really interesting scholarship about exactly the Jewish and Christian sects that are present in Mecca and influencing things. It's really, really interesting. But in the Quran, you see the exact same move that they're making with reference to Abraham. They will ultimately make the argument that they, not Jews, not Christians, are the true heirs of Abraham. And this gets all tied up with the question of Ishmael, because uh, in the Quran they imagine that, uh, or argue that, uh, the Arab race comes down through Ishmael. Ishmael's Abraham's oldest son. You know, you get the idea. They tell the story slightly differently. Hagar is not just a concubine. Hagar becomes an official wife. They also think Hagar was black, and so you get a Hagar and Abraham together, and you get the Arab skin tone, right? This is their thinking. It's fascinating stuff. But it's going back to Abraham. So you've got Christians and Muslims both arguing that they're the true uh, people of God because they plug into Abraham. And the fascinating thing about Romans is that it's a Jew who's helping the Christians make the argument. <laughs> 
So this verse is one of the more influential verses that you're going to encounter in the Bible, just in terms of the impact that it has upon the world, which is interesting stuff. So we keep going. He's got to go find some different animals, some different birds. What he does is he's got to cut the animals in half and separate the pieces. He's got to kill birds, put one on each side, and basically think about it like your garden pathway that you've got lined with stones on one side and then the other, only he's lining them with animal corpses, right? But he's making a path between these sacrificial animals. And then the sun goes down, he falls asleep, deep and terrifying darkness, and the smoking fire pot and flaming torch pass down that path. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So, to your descendants, right? Reaffirming that piece of it. Strange little thing, right? Flaming torch, smoking fire pot, walking down a path, more or less, between dead animals. This is modeled on something called a suzerainty treaty. They were all the rage in the ancient world. The versions that we get in the Pentateuch uh, are primarily modeled on Assyrian, the ancient Assyrian Empire. Um, if you're familiar, you've got the Babylonian Empire off to one side, kind of where Iran and Iraq is. You've got Egypt. Those are two great powerhouses. And then think about north of Palestine, up there in Turkey. Right, Asia Minor, that kind of area, northern Palestine, that's where the Assyrian Empire is. Okay? And their suzerainty treaties seem to be the primary influence on the ones we get in the Bible, although there are some other influences as well um, from like the Philistines and some other places. The Hittites have versions of these that are influential, but the primary one is Assyria. But what these treaties are designed to do, they're basically empire treaties where small kings will enter into an agreement with large kings, right? So you've got a fundamental imbalance of power in these treaties. You've got a weaker king and a stronger king. And basically what's happening is the weaker king is saying, okay, I'm going to be your vassal, right? I'm going to report to you, you're going to be my overlord. And the stronger king is saying, okay, I'm going to be your overlord, but here's the deal. You're going to do these things. If you don't do these things, but you do these things, here's what's going to happen to you. That's what the dead animals symbolize. And so they would form these agreements. They'd be all written up, and then walking down this kind of path was part of the ceremony that went into these things, as far as we can tell. So what we've got here is picking up that cultural form that's present and applying it to the covenant to say that little king, Abraham, and we just saw him acting like a king, right, in the previous chapter. Little king Abraham is making a treaty and, be, and formally becoming the vassal of God, the big king. And uh, you get all the blessings and curses and things like that, those traditions uh, in the Old Testament. But that, that fits into that agreement. Here's the blessings that are going to come from being part of this arrangement, but here's the curses if things go wrong, right? It's all laid out very clearly. 
But so they're entering this agreement. And Abraham, who has become powerful, is formally placing his power as subservient to God. Does anybody know what happens in chapter 16? Yeah. Oh no. Chapter 16 is Hagar and Ishmael. Chapter 16, right, we just, we've just been through all this, right? Abraham's like, what, what are you going to do for me, God? God's like, I'm going to do it. Here's a formal treaty. Still not happening. So they're like, well, let's take matters into our own hands, right? They break the treaty pretty quick, <laughs> which is why God has to keep affirming the relationship to them over and over and over, so that when uh, the strangers show up and they say, before this time next year, Sarah's going to be pregnant, this is a renewal of the alliance. And actually, we all know the word covenant, right? The word covenant is the word for alliance. It's the same word in the Hebrew. It's this kind of formalized relationship. So, even though <laughs> we get this reaffirmation here, it doesn't take too long in the story for Abraham to go back to being afraid, asking God what God's done for him lately, and taking matters into his own hands. And setting up the relationship whereby the Muslims will later argue that they are the true heirs <laughs> of Abraham. Because of Ishmael. Because of Ishmael. Yeah. Argue that we're the true heirs of his, no, Abraham? Our faith weighs <laughs> mm -hmm. And we have to come back. Yep. I think uh, something I was thinking about was the response that uh, Abraham had to Melchizedek. To me, that made me in a, a preparation for the revelation that God gives to him, mm. bringing him to that alliance, because he does submit to Melchizedek. There's a submission, but not a total, perhaps, maybe recognition of God's supreme. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then going into this, God is confirming that. Yeah, the, the thing that and makes the... Yeah. But the thing that stands out for me with the whole Melchizedek thing is because he's described as, I think, a priest of the Lord is the language that gets used. Although now I want to see exactly because I don't have it memorized. But the name Melchizedek actually means my king is Zadok, which is one of the Canaanite deities. So he's got another god built into his name. And yet he's being described as a priest of God Most High, is the language that gets used. Well, kind of like Moses' father-in-law. Mm -hmm. God wasn't just picking on Abraham because he had a people. Yep. But then the other thing that I think is really interesting about this is it's not the Lord, like we talked about last week. It's a different divine name. So there's just layer, like the Melchizedek thing is just endlessly fascinating. Um, there's so many different ways that it can get interpreted and has been interpreted, but yeah. 
um, there does seem to be a kind of um, Abraham treats him differently than Abraham treats other kings. And he, in turn, treats Abraham differently, right? It's an interesting story. Yep. Yeah. Well, when I teach world religions up at, at the university, I'll tell them the Abraham story. I call it Bible stories with Dr. McMack, and I just tell it in real plain language. And then at the end, I say, and so that's who three different major religious traditions come from, right? Because, you know, not necessarily these paragons of virtue that you would usually expect. But. Real people. Yeah, hope even for us, right? <laughs> well, Psalm 27. Honestly, there's not a lot. I, I have real trouble with the Psalms. Um, I'm not poet, uh, of a poetic turn of mind, <laughs> put it that way. Um, the thing that did jump out at me about this Psalm and why I think it's in this set is it's very much like a, a hymn of praise to a protecting king which fits very much with that ending from the, the reading in Genesis and the relationship between Abraham and God and God's people and God as that kind of protecting high king. So a lot of that comes through. I noticed uh, in verse 8, God's face becomes very important. And this is also kind of king language. Um, for instance, we, we know the story of Esther, right? One of, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. But there's those moments when Esther has to go in and see the king. And the question is, you know, is the king going to accept her in his presence, right? Is, is the king going to show his face to her, show favor to her, right? So this idea of face when it's tied to a king, it's, it, how close is the king letting you get? Is the king letting you get close enough to see the king's face? Not everybody gets that close. But here... She didn't ask to see him either. She just kind of walked in. Right. Which is why it's such a, a tense and yeah. dramatic moment. Um, but here we're, we're seeking the Lord's face. We're asking God not to hide God's face. And so there's that, that similar kind of dynamic, right? We're, we're going in. <laughs> Hopefully, God will accept our presence there and our access to God will be given. Other thoughts on the psalm that any of you have? It follows the thing about fear. Yeah. It, yes, it very much does. It very much does. Know, the, the petition over and over again, the need for reassurance, the need for validation that God has not forgotten us, and we mm -hmm. humans are very limited in our memories of what God has and doesn't do for us. And, yeah. and so I, you know, I do think um, it does speak to just that. When yep. the company is needing reassurance and affirmation that God is present, and he has not forgotten us, mm -hmm. and that we will be okay. Yep. You know, but we have to I am guilty. Ah, I am too. Um, <laughs> praying sometimes daily. I pray daily. Sometimes. 
asking for help with my pain level and, and asking God to chip in a little more. Huh? And I do, I think. Yeah. I'm guilty. I ask for that. You, you need to come on, help me out a little bit here. Huh? He says, wait. <laughs> I have something in mind for you. Wait. We're all seeking God's face in one way or another and hoping that he will reveal himself to us. <laughs> and he does in many ways. So it goes back to the original seeking the Lord yeah. and, and praying. And it doesn't always happen with a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, no, right? And it may be in a different way than what we are seeking. Mm -hmm. Yep. I asked Jenny at breakfast this morning. Yeah. When, when, I didn't say yes, when we get to heaven, when we run into Jesus, if I ask him a question, is he going to give me a straight up answer? Or is it going to. <laughs> Be a reply with a question and a parable. <laughs> I need to know. Well, I can't think of a single story where Jesus gave a straight-up answer. I know. Yeah. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a horror that you wouldn't have five question minutes with a question. But I think the good part will be that you are in the presence of Jesus and you'll feel good. Yep. I don't know if you'll have any questions for him at that point. Yeah. Well, I like to think we got to fill the time with something, and might might as might as well be theology. <laughs> yep, I'm gonna I'm gonna find different different theologians and be like, how could you have been so wrong? <laughs> Uh, but speaking of uh, Jesus and straight answers and whatnot, let's, let's skip Paul for the moment um, in Philippians because there's lots of interesting stuff in Luke that I would love to talk about. Um, Luke 13, 31 to 35, pretty, pretty short passage. For anyone who's wondering, the blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord is from Psalm 118, verse 28. If you're feeling like looking up another psalm later on. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to, and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Anything seem odd there? Why were the Pharisees going there? Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, we have this mental story about, you know, Pharisees are bad guys. Pharisees are constantly arguing with Jesus. And then we kind of just mentally lump them together with the rest of the Jewish authorities because all the Jewish authorities are arguing with Jesus at one point or another, seems like. And yet, here, we've got some Pharisees coming over and saying, hey, get out of town. I think the thing to remember is... Um, well, there's... Right, there's, there's Nicodemus that we saw... Um, I've got another guy to talk about in a minute, but anybody ever have the pleasure of talking with a rabbi? Yes. Yes. Do they ever give straight answers? 
had one on a radio show with me once. Yeah. Tough. Yeah. Ever ever talk to more than one rabbi at a time? No. Now there's a trip. <laughs> right? What what do rabbis do? They argue. Right? And the rabbinic tradition seems to have been derived from key elements of the Pharisaic sect from this time period. So it stands to reason that the Pharisees like to argue too. So you've got these Pharisees coming and questioning Jesus and getting into arguments. That's just what Pharisees do. Exactly. Yeah. And Jesus just argues right back, right? He doesn't seem too put upon. He's like, sure, let's have an argument. And there's even that one story where he tells the one guy, you know, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Right? You're you're close. So there's this just there's this whole tradition of how you have these kinds of discussions. And the Pharisees, um, sure, there are divergences later on between Pharisees and Jesus' followers and so on, but at the time, there's a lot of similarities, and they're, they're much closer together than they are far apart. So Nicodemus, right, comes and has a conversation with Jesus by night. Um, there's also Gamaliel in Acts. That ring a bell? Gamaliel is actually attested in the rabbinic traditions. We hear about Gamaliel. Acts chapter 5, he actually defends the early Jesus movement to some other folks, even though he's not part of it. He's like, eh, what's that? Acts 5. So there's another key Pharisee who's sympathetic, at least, saying, hey, let's not rush to judgment on this thing. Jesus himself, as he's depicted in the Gospels, seems to be embedded in contemporary Pharisaic arguments. He's teaching about and arguing with the Pharisees about things that, as far as we can tell, the Pharisees were arguing about at this time. Now, I'm going to take a step back from that because it is really hard to date anything in the rabbinic traditions with any kind of certainty because it all got worked over a couple times, about 150 years and then later after Jesus' death, and it's all smoothed out, so it's really hard to tell what happened when and to corroborate this kind of stuff with the kind of specificity that we need to make real clear arguments, but they, they seem to be occupying the same intellectual waters, put it that way. And that goes back to the, the question, Margaret, of um, how boys were trained, right? Um, later on in the rabbinic traditions, yes. Whether that's happening at Jesus' time and to what extent and how, fa- how much of the country and what socioeconomic levels, right, way up for grabs. What that sparks for me, and I don't know if it's accurate or just my mind, but mm-hmm. the story version, you know, the movie version, is Jesus when he was a little boy and he went into the temple and mm-hmm. the fact that he actually opportunity to debate, I don't know, if he debated, talked, yep. preached at that time make, makes me think that that was something they were familiar with because otherwise why would that story be there that Jesus was in the temple listening mm-hmm. to him and talking to them, you know, so it made me think that that's part of what they were accustomed to. But right, but they're, they're also shocked. Yeah. Right. They're also shocked. Well, they were, weren't they shocked with his wisdom? Mm-hmm. 
that where they, so I don't know where they shot this. Yeah, they were trying about to be in Yeah, or as much as is with them. Right, but he would have been in the temple, right? Because he's old, like 12, he's old enough to go with his dad and be part of the congregation. Um, Are they shocked at the fact that he's arguing with them at all? Are they shocked at the fact of how well he's arguing? Right, it's not super clear, right? But there's there's something unusual there, at, at the least. But there are these debates in the rabbinic tradition between a rabbi called Hillel and a rabbi called Shammai. And if you've been on many university campuses, maybe you know they have these Hillel houses. That's the, what they're called, and it's where um, a group of Jewish students will keep kosher together and follow um, the different um, rabbinic calendars and celebrations and all of that together in this kind of house uh, where they can do that. So this Hillel figure is really important in the tradition. And Jesus, his teachings as depicted seem really close to Hillel. So there's these interesting parallels. And then we've got Nicodemus, then we've got Gamaliel, and then there's Acts 15. In Acts 15, verse 5, we actually hear about believers in Jesus, part of the Jesus movement, who are Pharisees. So they didn't think there's a hardest... No, this is after. So there, there are members of the Pharisees who then become Jesus' followers, and, but continue to identify as Pharisees. Think about Paul, right? Paul's like, I'm as good a Pharisee as it's possible to be, but, right? And then there's James, the brother of Jesus, who um, very quickly seems to become a leading figure in the Jesus movement in Jerusalem. There's a number of different things throughout the New Testament that would associate James with a Pharisaic Jesus-following tradition. And that's his brother, supposedly, right? So there's, there are these ties there that seem to put Jesus very close to the Pharisees, the way he teaches, what he teaches, the sort of people he argues with, some of these early followers coming from those sects, some of these major figures like Nicodemus and Gamaliel from those sects showing up in the stories, right? There's lots of stuff to put Jesus among the Pharisees. The fact that he gets up in Luke chapter 4 in a synagogue and reads and announces his mission, that puts him in the orbit of the Pharisees. Because the thing to remember is, again, like synagogue worship now is very highly developed. But at this time, it was not nearly as formalized and important because you've still got the temple. You've still got sacrifices happening, right? All that shift hasn't happened yet. And in the, in the time period, you've got the Sadducees who were running the temple. They were the aristocratic, wealthy, powerful Jewish folks who were collaborating with the Romans, running the temple. And the Pharisees were actually a protest movement against that, who said, you know what, we don't think your sacrifices matter all that much because you've gotten in bed with the Romans and messed everything up. So we're going to hang out out here in the countryside. We're going to organize these synagogues where we're going to focus on the divine law and keeping it as best we possibly can. Figuring out what all the rules are, figuring out how to apply the rules in daily life, and making sure we're doing all that stuff. 
right? Now you think about it, um, the folks who, who really were upset with Jesus are the ones who were running the temple, collaborating with the Romans, right? Not the, not the Pharisees, who were much more Jesus' speed, right? Out there in the countryside, upset with what's going on in the temple, right? Jesus gets pretty upset with what's going on in the temple at one point. So there's all this stuff to put him among the Pharisees, which is just super fascinating to think about. Yeah. So Jews for Jesus are folks of Jewish descent who follow something that's very close to evangelical Christian belief, but then also keep a number of Jewish practices as well. And it's, it's a branch of, of a thing that's called Messianic Jews, Messianic Judaism, and it is a just huge point of debate um, within the Jewish community and within the Christian community as to what exactly this is. So I'm not touching it with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> but, you know, that's, it's a much more modern phenomenon. But, you know, back in that time period, for the first 100, 150 years, um, Christianity is primarily a Jewish thing. And eventually, you just get so many Gentiles coming into it, especially as it gets more and more accepted in the Roman Empire and then becomes... Um, the preferred religion of the Roman Empire, that the Jewish element just kind of falls out. And we talked about Christian anti-Semitism last time. But the key question is, so we've got this, the kind of things that I've been highlighting here that seem to put Jesus among the Pharisees. But then you've got scholars arguing about whether Jesus could actually read and was, was Jesus educated at all. So, I mean... Figuring out the historical Jesus has been an ongoing challenge for hundreds of years. We're never going to figure it out. Um, it could just be just as well that this connection to, with Jesus and the Pharisees was something that the gospel storytellers wrote back in from their perspective because you've got all these Pharisee Jesus followers who are teaching a certain way and connecting the dots a certain way. People like Paul, people like James, other people who we don't even know their names, right? the way they're telling the stories. So was it actually that Jesus was from the Pharisees, or is this how Jesus is being remembered and being made sense of? Does it make sense of Jesus' authority as a teacher and the fact that folks are following him to associate him with Pharisees? Especially after the temple gets destroyed. It'd make a lot of sense. So that's the historical challenge that goes into all this. But certainly in the text, there's this very close association Bringing that to the chosen, yeah. Even though is it's it's a story, right. tons of stories. But in the Bible, it's tons of stories that we don't know if mm -hmm. some of the things that they said were at the time or not. Yeah. They just so that's why the chosen in me is so great, and I, I agree with you that <laughs> this guy who plays Jesus as a chosen is the best best I've seen. It's if that story brings somebody closer to Christ, I'm cool with it. 
So three things real fast, and then we'll go worship together. <laughs> um, the thing to remember along that line, Dave, is they also did not have the sense of his, history and fact that we have, right? Ideas are technologies, and they can have extensive research and development phases. And the idea of history as we think about it and historical fact as we think about it just simply did not exist at the time. So, you know, you tell stories to explain things, and you use the ideas and the categories that you have. That's one. Two, uh, later on in this, this uh, section of the gospel, Jesus describes himself as a hen. One of the better-known um, feminine images that gets associated with God in the New Testament. And, of course, um, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, God does not have a body. God, as such... Jesus does in the Christian tradition, but God as such does not have a body, therefore God as such does not have a gender, and both masculine and feminine images can communicate what it is that God is like and what our relationship to God is like. So that's something I wanted to point out. And then finally, this bit about Jerusalem killing prophets and stuff, um, that's not in the Bible anywhere. Like, there are a couple, like, real tiny stories buried in, like, Second Chronicles <laughs> and Jeremiah about, like, a prophet getting killed. Um, but this isn't something that comes from the biblical text. This is from a book called The Lives of the Prophets. It's an apocryphal book that was from roughly this time period and seems to have been influencing the story as it's getting told. But that book has Isaiah... Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Micah, all these prophets whose names we recognize being killed by their fellow Jews and very often in Jerusalem. So that's just how some of these books are influencing one another even at the time um, and influencing the imagination. So I just wanted to highlight that for us there as well. And apoc apocryphal books are not deuterocanonical books, just so we can clarify. I've told you before about the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures that then gets picked up and used by Christians. But there's a bunch of books in the Septuagint in Greek that do not show up in the tradition of the Hebrew text for the Hebrew scriptures. That's what's in the Catholic Bible that's not in the Protestant Bible. Those are the deuterocanonical books. Apocrypha is different. Apocrypha means hidden away, right? Those are just other books that are circulating at the time and intersecting, but they're not, they've never been brought into the canon even in a secondary way. That's what deuterocanonical means, secondary canon. Anyway, um, thank you all for the conversation, and we'll see you all again next week. You've been listening to the McCracken Cast. I am, and hopefully will remain, Dr. Travis McMacken. I do all the production work myself, in case you couldn't tell, but the music is by my son, Connor. Until next time, think interesting thoughts.